Uh, many of us have been entrusted with something to take care of it, to keep it and guard it at different times. Maybe something as, as simple as a favorite book or spare umbrella, or maybe more significantly a pet, a house, maybe house sitting, or a child, taking care of someone else's child for a time. Well, well, throughout this book of 1 Timothy, as, as we've heard, there's this clear priority on guarding the gospel. You know, just as Paul was entrusted with the gospel himself, he entrusts Timothy with the gospel. He commands Timothy and, and the church by extension to, to guard it and, and teach it and live it out. And we see that especially today in this passage. Uh, well, Guardians of the Gospel was the title Dave gave to the first sermon in this series, and we're re- revisiting that, that idea as it, as it comes throughout the book. Uh, we saw in, in chapter 3, Paul describes us, God's household, his family, as the pillar and foundation of the truth. We're the ones to hold up and promote the truth, to defend it and proclaim it. This, this is a huge responsibility God gives to us to represent him in the world. Do you think we have what it takes to do that? To be the, this pillar and foundation of the truth, to be guardians of the gospel? Well, there's, there's this superhero movie that some of you will have seen called Guardians of the Galaxy, which I think is what Dave was alluding to in that first sermon title. And so in this movie, there's this mish, mishmash group of different characters who end up coming together, you know, save, save a planet from a villain who, who wants to take over the universe. But, you know, looking at these different individuals, really, they don't seem to be that special. They don't seem to be up to the task. There's a, there's a space thief who just steals things all over the place. There's a, a walking tree, a talking raccoon, a couple of other misfits. None of them really seem to be the type you'd say, hey, can you, can you protect the galaxy for us? And as Dave mentioned earlier, we, are we the type of people who someone might say, hey, can you, can you guard the gospel for us? We can do nothing apart from Christ. It's only God in his strength working through us that we can do this task that he gives to us. He does choose us for this task, to, to guard the gospel, to be the pillar and foundation of the truth. So the question is, how do we do it? What does it take to be a guardian of the gospel? Well, let's have a look at this final section of 1 Timothy to see what Paul and God has to say. So firstly, from verse 11, it takes deliberate action. I'll read verse 11. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Speaking to Timothy, and by extension all of us, God's word says, but you, men and women of God, flee these things and pursue these things. What are these things recommended to flee? Well, Well, it's looking back at the previous passage from last week, particularly controversies that that distract from the gospel and the love of money. These things are threats to the gospel. They distract 
the guardians from their task. So, so have nothing to do with them. But how? By pursuing something better. Flee to pursue. In, in parenting our two-year-old Zach, I'm learning it's much more helpful to tell him what he should do, not just what not to do. You know? For example, don't throw your food on the floor. And if I, if I just leave it there, he, he just keeps throwing his food on the floor or he doesn't know what to do with it. Instead, put it on your plate or, or in your mouth. That's a better place. You know, don't be rough with your little brother. Instead, be gentle. Be gentle. Similarly here, we're to flee controversies, flee the love of money, and instead pursue the godliness that fits with the gospel. We're called to pursue these qualities. To be a guardian of the gospel requires a deliberate, an active pursuit of the things of God. Verse 12 has two more very active and deliberate commands for us. Fight the good fight, Take hold of the eternal life you were called to. You know, God gives us faith that we might exercise it, not not just sit on it, but that we might exercise our faith, begin to live the life that fits with the gospel. And it's just like, imagine being given a bike. You don't just leave it in the shed, or, or, or even when you're on it, you don't just sit on it stationary, you'll, you'll fall over, you, you pedal. There's activity going on to use it as it's designed, and so that you don't fall over. So we must exercise our faith by pursuing this godly character, pursuing righteousness, you know, with the love what is good, hate what is evil. And, and our moral compass, as much as the world around us might turn it one way or another way, ours is to be aligned north-south with what God says. Or the next one, pursuing godliness. It means we're deliberately filling our minds with things that draw us closer to God, not not closer to the world. Because I wonder, when you're waking up in the morning or or when you're going to sleep at night, what, what are the things that just pop into your mind? What are the things you dwell on the most that just reappear in your mind? Are they things of God or things of the world? Or a couple of the next ones, love and gentleness. God calls us to work hard at being loving and and gentle in our relationships, to be gracious with your spouse when they've had a bad day, to be gentle with disobedient children or, or grandchildren, to listen well to a friend. And by faith, we depend on God for, for his help to do these things. So that's our first point of being a guardian of the gospel. You flee to pursue. We flee distractions from the gospel to pursue the godly life that fits with the gospel. But how do we do that? For many of us, I think the pursuit of this godly life can sometimes feel like one step forward, two steps back. Or sometimes it can just feel too much we might think, I'm too tired. Look at, look at this list of attributes. I can't do all that. I, I haven't got anything left to give. I just can't do it. 
But I think the key here is to have our eyes fixed on God. He is the one we're accountable to. He's the one also who motivates us and empowers us for this pursuit. Have a look at verse 13 and 14. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who testified before Pontius Pilate, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. His eyes, in his sight, his eyes are the ones we ought to care about the most. We ought to have this audience of one. He is the one for whom we're called to be spotless and blameless. And here, actually, Paul doesn't just name God and Christ, but he describes them for us, giving us more of a, more of a picture. God who gives life to everything. He's the life giver. And, and Jesus, who confessed himself king before Pilate, who made the good confession. When he was on trial, about to be sentenced to death, he gave this good confession. Yes, I am king. It is as you say, but my kingdom is not of this world. God is our creator and redeemer. He gives life. He wins us salvation. And, and Paul continues to paint this rich picture about God's majesty along the lines of what we sung about in our first song. Have a look from halfway through verse 15. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one can see or has seen. To him be honour and might forever. Amen. Paul just, he kind of overflows in this doxology, this description of God's glory, making us dwell on the nature of God, helping us to be in awe of his majesty. Because God is holy. There is none other like him. He's the only ruler, the ultimate king, and the, the ultimate lord. He alone is immortal, and, and no one can approach him or, or see him, it says. God is a holy God and therefore worthy of all our attention, our honor, our, our glory, our power. He's the one we need to fix our eyes on. Now, it can be difficult to keep this vision of a holy and majestic God in our eyes day to day. But I think there's a few pictures in the Bible that I love that helps me to see this, that kind of peel back the curtain on God's glory. Think of, think of Jesus' transfiguration when Peter, James, and John were with Jesus on the mountain, and suddenly... Jesus doesn't look like, a, like you or I, an ordinary human, but his, his clothes are whiter than snow. His face is gleaming like sunlight. Or perhaps think of the, the visions in Revelation of the heavenly throne room with an emerald court, sapphire skies, precious jewels, burnished bronze, all these, these word pictures try to give us a greater picture of God's glory. Isaiah also had a vision of this throne room of God. And here's his reaction. Look and listen to what he says. Woe to me, 
I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Imagine you're having a sleep in the day for some reason, or, or you've just slept in, you know, school holidays. You sleep till 10 or 11 a.m., and someone just rips open the curtain. And the, sun, the blazing sun just blazes into your eyeballs. And what's your reaction? You shield your eyes, you squint. You can't deal with that brightness. This is the type of reaction people have to God when they see his glory, being overwhelmed by light. Not so much just at the physical brightness, but it's his holiness, his glory. God lives in unapproachable light. And yet, he comes down and enters humanity. He enters our world, our mess. He atones for our sin and invites us to come to his family, to come and serve him and worship him. So this is the God we fix our eyes on, the eternal God who's, who's come into our world. Sometimes I've been, something I've been enjoying this year is taking Zach for bike rides. Uh, Rachel bought me a, a bike seat. I don't know if you've seen those uh, for Father's Day. And so we, we go down around the Bay Run every now and again when it's a nice day and um, we enjoy seeing the boats and the cars. But because of his weight on the back of the bike, it's a little tricky to balance sometimes, and I need to be careful that I don't stack it with my child in the back of the bike. Right? I need to be steady and make sure I don't fall. So one of the things that I, that I mentioned before about bike riding is you need to be active. You need to be pedaling. If you slow down too much, that's when, that's when you get the, the wobbles. But another thing is you've got to look up. You know, I might be tempted to... You know, we're coming up this hill back up to Dremoyne. I might be tempted to get, get my head down and just pedal hard, but I need to be looking up, making sure I can see what's ahead. And so in this pursuit of godliness, it's not just about knuckling down and, and working really hard. We've got to fix our eyes on Jesus fix our eyes on him as our motivation and empowerment to keep going. And if, if we take this picture, this analogy a bit further, we could think of Jesus as, as the cyclist in front of us, leading the way. You know, like in the Tour de France, how they all follow a leader so that they can kind of get swept along in the slipstream, swept along in the tailwind. We just stick close to Jesus, eyes on him, and we get swept along as we follow him. And, you know, there are all sorts of things that we pass by, you know. Or I could, I could look at a nice cafe going past, going around the bay, or, or look at that beautiful yacht or something like that. There are all sorts of things that can lead us to take our eyes off Jesus and look at things that are temporary and passing. I wonder what the things are that hinder your pursuit, that's, that take your eyes away from Jesus. Perhaps it is even just knuckling down and, 
and working so hard to grow in your character that you forget to look at him. Or perhaps it is your own sin weighing you down, perhaps stumbling in the same sin again and again. Well, bring that to Jesus. Look to him. Look to the one who takes away your sin. Or perhaps is there a desire, a good desire that that has actually grown a bit too large? Perhaps a desire like performing well in your job. Or perhaps that, that next holiday coming up. Or ensuring things that Kids are functioning well. The household's running well. These are really good desires, but are they primary? No. Let's let's keep Jesus as our main focus, and these things will fall into their right place. Robert Murray McShane left us with this famous quote you might have heard before. For every look at Christ, take ten looks at yourself. For every... Oh, whoa. I got that completely opposite, didn't I? For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Wow, that was almost a disaster. Look to him. You know, just going through 1 Timothy, there's all sorts of things we, we can look at in Jesus' beauty and his, his majesty. You know, look at the one who is the eternal son of God yet became human. The one who came into the world to save sinners, who has immense patience for the very worst of sinners. The one who's a king, yet before Pontius Pilate died like a criminal. The one who was taken up in glory and he will reappear, he will return in glory. You know, recently I felt quite inadequate for this task of, of being a guardian of the gospel, for the, the gospel responsibilities God has given me to do. But this passage has encouraged me to look to him, look to Christ more and less at myself. Because we can get too focused on our own abilities or our own weaknesses. And he is his picture doesn't loom as large as it should in our minds. So may he fill the very center of our vision, pushing out other things that don't belong there. As that beautiful old hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. May we be so captivated by Christ, our loving Savior, that we don't need to look anywhere else, that our greatest desire is for him, to know him and to follow him, to stay closely on his tail. Now, there's a sense of finality as as we came to verse 16 with that doxology and the amen, but there are further instructions. So we'll Keep going, but so far, what it takes to be guardian of the gospel, to flee and to pursue, to keep our eyes fixed on God in Christ. Or in the bike analogy, keep pedaling and look up. Now coming to this last, oh, coming to the next section, there's a specific word 
to many of us, we living in the inner west of Sydney, maybe not all of us, but many, many of us would fall into this category. Verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. We ought to beware being arrogant in wealth or to put our hope in it. Unfortunately, we live in a world that puts its hope in wealth. Financial security is the name of the game. And our culture seems to see money as this ultimate provider or problem solver. You know, the world says, if you're feeling insecure about anything, just throw some more money at it and that will help. If you're feeling uncertain about your appearance, here, buy these cosmetics or this anti-aging cream or, or this protein powder and a gym membership. More money will help you look and feel better about yourself. Or if you're concerned about safety, check out all the latest technology we have. Because the other day I, I drove a friend's Kia Carnival 2022 model. And it was amazing. Reversing, there's, there's a reversing camera and, and somehow it gets a, a bird's eye view of the car with all the objects around it. And as I was reversing down the driveway, it, it beeps just because there's a car coming along the road that might approach. It's almost, it makes us think, oh, if, if we've got enough money, we can, we can guarantee our safety. But we all know that's not quite true. Or even if we're uncertain about having enough money, insurance, financial planning, if you spend money now, throw more money into it to secure your money later. Our culture sees money as this great provider and problem solver. And don't get me wrong, there's, there's a lot of wise ways to spend money in those things I mentioned. But our culture puts its hope in it which is so uncertain. They're not worth putting our hope in. So what do we do instead? Continuing in verse 17. But we put our hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God is the ultimate provider, not money. And he's a rich provider. Money, Money runs out, but God's storehouses, they're unlimited. There's a nice play on words in these verses with the word rich and and treasure. You know, God provides richly, abundantly, beyond our needs. Not not merely for our survival. He's a very generous God. So, So we can say, instead of being arrogant in what we have, we can say, thank you, God. Thank you, God, not not just for our daily bread, but for the enjoyment of pizza and lasagna and laksa and roast pork. We can say thank you, God, for clothing and, and shelter, but, but also for the, the really enjoyable things like warm down jackets for winter, for, for leather shoes, for jewelry, for carpet, air conditioning, for hot showers. We can say thank you to God for his abundant generosity. But more important than these things, we can say thank you, God, not only for pardoning our sin and and letting us escape the judgment we deserve, but 
adopting us into his family, calling us sons and daughters who are loved, giving us an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. God is not stingy. He's he's a rich provider, giving us far beyond what we need and far beyond what we deserve. And he richly provides these things for us. Also, that we might do good, that we might be generous and willing to share. Have a look at verse 18 and 19. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. We're to use these present riches for the, for the future, for the coming age, using what we're given now to invest in eternity. Because there's all sorts of investments we can look at these days, but there's only one place to invest that truly lasts, the kingdom of God. Again, we have this phrase, taking hold of life, that we had back in verse 12. Because through living with our hope rooted in, in the coming age, we, we take hold of this eternal life we've been given, life with Jesus and his people, people that we will share eternity with. I've been encouraged recently to hear about the Mercy Fund here at BPC, the way it's filled up so generously by many of you and the way it's dispensed so generously. It's this wonderful example of God's rich provision flowing out into rich generosity. So, So let's keep that going. God calls us to be cheerful givers, knowing that his storehouses are limitless. So that's our third point. Guardians of the gospel are rich in the coming age by putting their hope in God and the age to come, being rich in good deeds. Now, finally and briefly, guardians of the gospel will guard the gospel. That's obvious enough. But how do we do it? Well, let's have a look at the the final two verses of this whole book. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed, and in doing so have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. Guard what has been entrusted to your care, this all-important gospel message. By turning away from godless chatter and opposing ideas, but, but it takes some discernment to know what those opposing ideas are. Which ones are the ones to oppose? How do we do that? Well, I think the best defense is to know the gospel so well that our spider senses tingle the moment opposing ideas arise. If we consider that bike analogy again, if you've been given a bike, we don't leave it in the shed, but by riding it regularly, every day, riding it all the time, We'll know instantly if it's been tampered with or something's been changed. We spend so much time exercising the bike and and spending time on it that we know it so well that we can defend it and, and guard it. We guard it by riding it. 
guard the gospel by knowing the gospel. And we know the gospel by living in the gospel. One of my favorite songs from my favorite theologian, Colin Buchanan, it's about this. Um, it's called Live in the Gospel. And I think it, it, we sing it a lot at home because I think it really helpfully speaks on making the gospel part of your everyday thinking and life, not just something that you lock in the shed or a precious book you keep on the bookshelf, but something that you live in every day to hear some of the words. The gospel is the garden, not the gate. The gospel is the marriage, not the date. Not the reservation, it's the flight. More than just the sunrise, it's the light. Wake in it, walk in it, eat, sleep and talk in it. If you believe in it, live in the gospel. Run in it, rest in it, take every breath in it. Jesus, our righteousness, live in the gospel. So may we be people who get on that gospel bike every day and keep pedaling with our eyes fixed on Jesus and to where he's taking us. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we praise you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one and only God. We thank you for sending Jesus into the world to save sinners like us. Please help us to fix our eyes on you and to pursue godliness with zeal and joy as we follow closely after you. We pray this in Jesus' name.